Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. I'm Adam, and I like to party. <laughs> in, in case you, you didn't get the reference there, that's Adam referencing today's topic, which is Hot Rod. Uh, y'all voted, and y'all finally selected Hot Rod. We put Hot Rod on there like four, <laughs> five weeks in a row, being like, maybe they'll pick Hot Rod this time. And y'all finally did which allowed us to rewatch Hot Rod, uh, a film I hadn't really revisited since it came. It was in theaters. I saw it when it came out, and then like, I, I, I think I got it when it was on DVD, and then like I just kind of sat on the shelf, and I'm like, oh, I'll go back to this sometime. So this was a joy for me to kind of come back to it. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with Hot Rod or didn't rewatch it on Netflix, uh, the plot, it's kind of got this weird 1980s vibe to it, even though it takes place contemporaneously like they have the internet they have computers it, it takes place in 2007 but it's like has an 80s vibe and andy sandberg plays this neighborhood stuntman uh named rod and he really wants to fight his stepdad played by ian mcshane so that he'll earn his stepdad's respect uh but then when his dad comes down with a terminal heart condition and needs a heart transplant uh rod decides to raise the money by doing one big stunt so that he can then fight his dad and earn his respect because it doesn't mean anything if he's if he beats him up when he's infirm <laughs> so that's the movie it's very silly but what we kind of wanted to talk about the, today is the tone of to- of hot rod kind of the way its comedy operates and what that says about the lonely island who are kind of even though the film is credited to screenwriter uh pam bondy i believe is the screenwriter uh, i think it's pam beer pam brady Pam Brady, my mistake. Both wrong. Okay. Um, Then Lonely Island clearly had a a bit of a heavy hand in guiding it towards their personal tone. Akiva uh, Schaefer was the director. He's part of the trio. Um, And so we wanted to talk about their kind of comic tone, but also talk a little bit about the Apatow comic tone that was still, that was coming up at the same time. Like, because let's see, this was 2007. Knocked Up was 2006, 2007. Maybe 2008? That seems like a stretch. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think 40-Year-Old Virgin... 40-Year-Old Virgin was 2005. Yes. And then... So knocked, knocked Up, I think, up. was seven. Um, yeah, Knocked Up was 2007. So, so same year as Hot Rod. Yeah, so these two movies come out the same year. And I wanted to talk about sort of their... Diff- we wanted to talk about their different comic sensibilities and sort of their different levels of influence. Um, but just to, to start things off, Adam... What was your thoughts rewatching Hot Rod this past weekend? It's just so funny. Uh, but I was kind of like you. I mean, it's a movie that I, I saw and really liked. And my friends and I would quote it to each other a lot. Um, but, it, you know, I don't even know. I'm pretty sure I own it. I watched it on uh, Amazon Prime because it's actually on Amazon Prime now. It left Netflix last week or something like that and switched over to Amazon Prime mm. um, just because that was more convenient. Um but like you, it wasn't a film that I've watched a ton recently. I watched it a lot like around the time it came out. It was one of those DVDs that was passed around a lot. Uh, and you would quote to your friends Cool Beans all the time. Um, 
but like the as you said like the the construction of the film itself was interesting because it came about I think after the first or second season that the Lonely Island joined SNL and the Lonely Island, which is Andy Samberg, Akiva Schaefer and Yorma Taconi, uh, all auditioned for SNL at the same time. But Andy was the only one who was hired as a cast member. Akiva and Yorma were hired on as writers for SNL. Um, so they were all working there, but Andy was the only one on in uh, on screen. But they created L- Lazy Sunday, obviously, which kicked off the SNL digital shorts. And based on the success of that, uh, this was, yeah, this was after the first season that they had done that. Lauren Michaels found this script by Pam Brady, which had been uh, trying to get made for a long time, was originally written for Will Ferrell, um, and basically lobbied to get Lonely Island to make it. So this was, I mean, these guys were, I think, around 30 at the time, maybe late 20s. Um, so it was just like three goofballs handed a studio script and told to like, just go and make your own movie. Uh, And that's why you can see, I mean, the interesting part of of it to me is seeing uh, you can see the bones of like a a very traditional comedy and a traditionally plotted comedy in there. But then you just have these wild detours where you get the lonely Island brand of humor in there, like the cool beans, like the even just like the shot construction, how how they're piecing together these montages where all of Rod's stunts go terribly wrong. And he's trying to say safe words while he's lunging down a street Uh, like a safe word doesn't work when you're lunging down the street. Um, So that was what was really funny to me. And I remember reading stories about, uh, you know, because Seth Meyers, I think, was head writer at SNL at the time. And they would like be having phone conversations with him. So he was kind of mentoring them through the script process process but he would say they would call and be like we're gonna do this and he'd be like don't do that and they'd be like we're gonna do it and he'd be like please don't do that and then they'd be like we're gonna do it so they do it um and that's how you get a movie that's as weird as as hot rod is but yeah as i said i think the thing that i found most interesting this second time or not second but this most recent time around um was seeing kind of the push and pull of like this traditional comedy structure and then where the lonely island felt they could kind of push things and goof around and, and get a little strange. And I feel that in every scene, like yeah. I, you watch a scene and the scene starts out like pretty normal, like, or, or at least traditional like comedy. So like you'll have a scene where like that actually is meant to be kind of an emotional beat of like Rod, like looking over the photo of his father and like, I wish you were here, dad. I wish, you know, I wish you could see me. And then Norman Ticone comes in and, he, and all of a sudden the camera like, does a close up on, on Andy Samberg. And he goes, get <laughs> And he's just crying. He's just crying. Or like the cool beans, like it's an agreement. And then like, cool, cool beat. Like it goes on or, the scene where they're walking down like the street triumphantly and like you're the voice starts playing and people start singing and like, Oh, okay. Regular comedy. And then it breaks out into a riot. <laughs> that scene was insane to me watching it now. Cause I was like, this is a lot of extras. So like, this wasn't just like a goofy joke that they could just throw in there. Like this had a lot of planning and probably cost a lot of money. <laughs> and they're like, no, the idea is that we're walking along to a montage and then more people join us. And then there's a riot and someone throws someone out of a wheelchair and then we run away. And then yeah. is it addressed I mean, in the rest of the film? Not really. No. No, and that's the thing. Like, like there, like in terms of like comic setup and payoff, it very much is like contained within the scene. Yeah. So, for instance, like there's the scene where uh, and or Rod is like angry, like flash dance, like punch dancing in the forest, 
And like, that's the normal, like, that's the normal comedy. Like, ah, it's a parody of Flashdance, whatever. Ah, I get it. You know, but he's dancing. And then he falls. And then he falls for like a (laughs) solid minute. (laughs) So you have to get a stuntman to fall down a hill all day. Yeah. Shoot that, and that's going, to, and that just goes on. My wife did not understand. My wife was not a fan of this movie. She's never seen it before. <laughs> my fiance refused to watch it with me, so that's that's uh, that's how these go. This goes. Yeah, no. So she, so she's just sitting on the couch on her phone while I'm watching the movie, and I'm just crying at Andy Samberg falling down the hill because I just think it's like it goes on and on and on and on. Uh, it's the it's the oh shit and then, like he's dancing dancing shit and then roll 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 the the little additions there yeah it's just like it's just incredibly silly and then uh yeah him like constantly fighting his father and saying he's gonna he's gonna go out there and he's gonna raise the money to get a get a heart transplant and then he's gonna beat your ass it just doesn't make any sense. But you you see shades of the Lonely Island sketch comedy. I mean, I, I assume you were too, but I was a huge fan of, of their sketch videos mm-hmm. in college. Um, you know, Blurve and uh, Just Two Guys, all kinds of stuff. That's kind of how they first became like semi-famous on the internet before they joined SNL. Um, and it's just what they did. Like it, these were just three best friends who made funny videos together and i think hot rod you see them trying to figure out how to turn that into a movie well and what's interesting is that they've sort of stayed true to their comic sensibilities i think they've become more refined but like i you i when you watch something like the bash brothers experience like you see like oh yeah of course it's the same guys who made hot rod like that there's no disconnect there yeah whereas when i saw hot rod in 2007 the movie that it reminded me of was billy madison yeah. Where and like now, see an Adam Sandler film has changed a lot since then. Like if you go back and watch Billy Madison, it's a very weird movie. Like it's very like just kind of off kilter in a way that I find very enjoyable. Like in one scene, Bradley Whitford will just be on fire. <laughs> There's an imaginary penguin. Like it's delightful. Yeah. Um, but then by the time, like, by the time you get to Big Daddy, like all that stuff is pretty much out the window, and he's just making kind of middle of the road. You know, these are movies that I can get paid and my friends can get paid and like, we'll just make a nice little comedy for whatever, um, which is I like fine. Big Daddy. What? I enjoy Big Daddy. I enjoy Big Daddy, but I think at the at the time, Big Daddy is, is fine for what it is. Like, I think. But then it's like, what if I made nothing but Big Daddy? <laughs> what yeah. if I made what if like instead of making Billy Madison, which is kind of weird and just kind of out there? I mean, again, it is like even though it's like kind of that SNL comedy kind of brand. Mm-hmm. It's still a very weird film. And like watching Hot Rod, I'm like, oh, this is a very weird comedy that someone has clearly the free reign to just kind of do what they want and see if it works. And I think for Hot Rod, it works. But I like that the Lonely Island has stayed true to their comic sensibilities. And I think that's part of their success. So like a film like Popstar, I feel is like a more refined hot rod. Like they understand all the tools now at their disposal. So it has a stronger story structure. It's still weird, but it like it, it, the jokes are just sharper and it has a better idea of what it wants to say, but still like, I wouldn't describe like Popstar as like a straight parody. I would describe it more as like a kind of more like something in the vein of this is Spinal Tap. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I think um, I think with Hot Rod, you're also seeing them uh, 
trying to fit as much weird stuff as they can into a film, but as it as it rolls into its third act, it does become a bit more traditional because you do have to get that set piece where you know he rides the motorbike, he has to succeed. Um, I think the Ela Fisher character is a little uh, just like perfunctory. Like there's not a lot to her. Not a lot of people know what to do with Ela Fisher. Yeah, I was watching this, like no one really knows what to do with her. Like she's, I actually think she's very talented. I really like the movie. And I'm, I, I'm probably the only one who's seen this is Confessions of a Shopaholic, which I think she's <laughs> delightful in. She has kind of like a Lucille Ball energy to to her performance. I think she's delightful. But I also see her like in movies like this and like Now You See Me. And um, gosh, there's that The Lookout. Like I see her in these other these other movies and I'm like, I just feel like like people don't know what exactly to do. Like, OK, she's funny, but like, how do we use that to our advantage? And um, and that's a shame. I think she's the best in Wedding Crashers, where she's allowed to like oh, just yeah, get Wedding crazy. Crashers, yeah. yeah, she is really kind of like a goofball personality. I think right. uh, you know, I wish she'd been given the opportunity to do more of that. But like, you do feel like the studio is saying, like, okay, yes, you can do your weird, cool bean stuff. Which actually, I didn't say that. I think that was a fight actually in post production. Um, but yes, you can do your weird stuff. But there still has to be like a love story. Uh, Rod still has to be like you know an appealing leading man. Um, so that's kind of where that kind of stuff comes in. And it just feels like, I don't know. It doesn't feel super satisfying by the end. I say all this, like loving this movie, but you can also see. No, it, it's, it's, it's straining against traditional plot beats. So, yeah. and that's that, like you said, it's that push and pull. So you'll have that scene where, you know, the girl that he wants is going to leave her jerk boyfriend played by Will Arnett but the way the Lonely Island is going to get their way is they're going to have Will Arnett go, babe, 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 <laughs> babe, wait, babe, wait, babe. Just on and on and on it goes. And the breakup scene between him and the girl is going to like begin with him doing a too legit to quit like super earnestly and then being hit by a van. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just kind of the way it goes. Um but I just love little flourishes. Like you can all, almost feel like in scenes where, so like where Ela Fisher's boyfriend comes to pick her up and Rod is having this like awkward conversation with Will Arnett, but in the background, Bill Hader and Danny McBride are just like dancing really strangely. <laughs> so it's just, they're just like trying to like add in their own flavor of like weirdness, even when they have to get to a perfunctory scene like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, like, I, again, like they're just all these nice little touches that I really like. Like the, the thing I always quote from this movie is I've been drinking green tea all day, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's such a weird thing. It's like, it's, and like, again, I, I, I turned to my wife and her like expression was just like, is this supposed to like, they're bullying that guy. <laughs> yeah. funny. I'm like, yeah, it's supposed to be funny. They just bull- Danny McBride is just bullying this guy, taking his hat. Or just the recurring gag of the guy who just like really awkwardly, like thrusts his hips. Yeah. Dancing yes. for no reason, for not explained. <laughs> just a thing that happened. The, the test, the test screening scores of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, I know there's a deleted scene that they had to remove where Rod is like bullying his little brother into showing him his penis, which is just like was too much because <laughs> it was too silly, just too far, too far, hot rod. Yeah. But it, then you see, as you say, like uh, 
I mean, MacGruber isn't technically a Lonely Island film, but it was directed by Yorma Taconi, and you mm-hmm. have to imagine that Akiva and Andy like had some input on like what was going on, or at least like gave notes. Um, and that movie's incredibly silly. And then Popstar, as you said, like gets it's very silly, but it's clear they have free reign, but also have a more refined narrative structure. Like that movie, I think is like. I want to say it's like 87 minutes long. It's like the perfect length and it doesn't feel too long or, or too short and services all of the characters. And you get like a nice kind of sweet emotional story of this friendship between these three guys. Yeah, no, it, it works really well. And like, it's, it's as a viewer and as a fan, it's rewarding to sort of see that growth over time. Something that's less than rewarding is that for some reason, the lonely Island, like, Whenever they try to like, they've made some of like the best comedies of the 21st century, and they bomb at the box office. Yeah, nobody like, shows Pop up. Star totally bombed. MacGruber yeah. bombed, even though it's not there. Hot Rod, I'm pretty sure wasn't a hit. No. So well, like, Hot Rod was released like the first week of August, which like that's like people, a super bad slot. Yeah, and people forget like. Uh, like, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy and Suicide Squad were both big hits in August, but that wasn't traditionally a huge. No ground for like big movies because people were getting ready to go back to school um and therefore uh studios didn't normally put their best foot forward during those times but yeah hot rod made 14 million against a 25 million dollar budget which to begin with giving these guys these kind of untested guys 25 million dollars to make a a comedy movie something that could only happen in the 2000s yes yes absolutely well and especially because i think and i think this serves as a good segue to sort of what we to to next topic Avatar had kind of broken the dam on like these sort of new r-rated comedies and and, be, and to be fair hot rod is hot rod i'm pretty sure is pg-13 it's really straining against that pg-13 rating mm-hmm. um but this new wave of like oh there are these new comic voices i'm like you can make a 40 year old version it's going to be a massive hit so like we need to like get new comedies and so i think that really did make it a more opportune time, especially to take a chance on new voices. And I, I just mentioned Superbad. Superbad, and it's even though I'm pretty sure Apatow was a producer yeah. on Superbad, but like that was sort of taking a chance on, um, I mean, Greg Matola had done an indie film, The Day Trippers before that, but this was sort of his, I think his first studio film. And then you also had, you know, the, the taking a chance on Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg on their script. Um, like, Jonah Hill was kind of coming up. He had just done Accepted and Michael Sarah had Arrested Development, but they weren't like names mm-hmm. yet. So, but there was, but then all of a sudden, like Super Bad is this ma- massive hit. So, like, what if we start giving out chances to what? Like, who knows what will be funny and what will click with people and what, what can be a hit? I find that whole Apatow factory really fascinating. And I'm sure we'll talk more about this when we get to King of Staten Island next month. Um, but it, it, and from everything I read, so obviously Apatow co-created Freaks and Geeks. Uh, you had James Franco, Jason Siegel, Seth Rogen on that show, um, and they all said specifically that Judd taught them how to write while they were making that show. Judd told them, "No one is going to write the things for you because you guys are, frankly, like you're not the leading men. Like you're not going to be Franco. except for Franco, who uh, you know obviously went a different way because um, he was he was playing James Dean like right after that." Um, but, uh, he taught them how to write screenplays. And when it got to undeclared, uh, which was Judd's next show, they wouldn't allow him to cast Seth Rogen because freaks and geeks had failed. So we hired Seth Rogen as a writer. Um, and even I was rewatching the 40 year old version recently. Wait, 
Are you talking about Undeclared? Undeclared, yeah. Well, Seth Rogen is is like a supporting cast. He wanted him in in one of the lead roles, I think. Okay, I've always considered one of the four leads of that. But anyway, go on. Is he? It's yeah, been a it's while since I saw Siegel, him. It's Jason Siegel who's the one who's a recurring character on that. Okay, maybe I'm getting those mixed up. Um, but the thing was, is like Judd kept pulling these guys up with him as he was succeeding mm-hmm. and as he was going. And I was rewatching 40 Year Old Virgin recently, and Seth Rogen is in that film, but he's also listed as a co-producer, which is usually a, a credit reserved for someone who's been like working on the screenplay or kind of helps give notes um in some kind of creative capacity uh and so it's interesting watching so 40 year old virgin seth rogan is like the supporting character who's the breakout of that and so judd makes him the star of his next movie but you also have jonah hill in that super small role that also kind of pops on screen. And so then Judd produces Superbad with Jonah in the lead role. And then you get Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is Jason Siegel writing his own screenplay. It's kind of this uh, this process of like making these movies and seeing who's popping and then giving them the opportunity to then go on and lead their own movies or their own shows and stuff like that after the fact. Um, and obviously it didn't happen with all of them. Like Martin Starr, uh, I don't think ever got like a, a super big like leading role in a film, but he was always as part of that kind of Apatow brand of comedy. But the the tone of those comedies allowed allowed for experimentation. And even Forty Year Old Virgin, like Steve Carell, was not a huge star at the time. That was kind of a risk. I mean, people knew him from The Daily Show, kind of, and the first season of The Office had aired, but it was not well received and didn't have very big ratings. Um, I think Anchorman was probably the biggest thing people knew Steve Carell from. So I think that's which what again, gives... Apatow was a producer on that. Yes, which again, Apatow was a producer on. And so I think when you get to Hot Rod, you have... So in the wake of 40-year-old version, studios were just clamoring for like, what's the next big, funny, R-rated comedy? And that I think that's what allowed more creative freedom on Hot Rod, because not only were you taking chances on people who weren't huge stars, you were allowing for a more kind of loose style of comedy whereas most of the comedies of like the 90s you think of something like there's something about mary very funny and very strange at times and dirty but very written like that that movie feels very scripted and the jokes are very well plotted and stuff like that whereas 40 year old virgin is much more conversational and improvisational um same with knocked up same with super bad hot rod is isn't necessarily improvisational but it is um loose it feels a little loose yeah 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 it has that kind of like absurdist undertone which would which also felt different uh and new at the time i'm having trouble remembering like what were the forgettable comedies of the 2000s but i imagine there were some around i mean obviously they're they're, they they serve their purpose as being forgettable yeah but something like accepted like you mentioned like that movie is fine it it doesn't necessarily have a, a strong like improv or you know any like memorable runs or anything like that it's just like oh i mean i guess obviously we're ignoring the thing that was huge at the time which was the the brat pack so you had uh you know old school and I was say like the todd phillips <laughs> comedies are your yeah like i mean old school is fine road trip is what 99 i think or 2000 um you know but then you, know, you have like school for scoundrels and yeah you know starsky and hutch yeah. And Lander Hazard. Which I like Zoolander, but it was not a success. So Yeah. So like yeah, I mean there there was certainly comedy flops along the way, but like in terms of like who left an impact and who still whose impact can still be felt, um, Harrod certainly I think found its audience eventually. Um Yeah. And 
And to the, uh, I guess what I was going to is that like, it was a little incestuous, the success, like the people that were in the movies then went on and created things. So with Hot Rod, you know, obviously Bill Hader, um, I think that was one of his first movie roles, uh, you know, obviously was a huge SNL star um, and was on SNL at the time, but really broke out big and was then like leading his own films like Trainwreck. And then obviously went on and created Barry, which is a little while longer. But then you have someone like Danny McBride who didn't like he was still in like Pineapple Express, which was a, a Judd Apatow film. Yeah, I mean, Danny McBride kind of made his own way in the sense that like he came up, he made the foot fist way. Yeah. With um, Jody Hill. And, um, you know, and then they sort of kind of forward, like, it's funny. I remember I did, I had just started working like as like a film journalist and I did the um, super bad, had like a travel, like a PA tour. So like I sat down and interviewed um, Jonah Hill, Bill Hader, um, Christopher Mintz-Plassey and Michael Sarah, And I was talking to them and they were all just like, kind of like already like raving about the foot fist way. <laughs> and so like, that was a film that was like clearly on the radar of like funny people who clearly wanted to work with Danny McBride. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because then Danny obviously went and created Eastbound and Down with Jody, and then they created Vice Principals, and then they created uh, the Righteous Gemstones. So yeah, and, that, and that's not to mention like, like you know, Danny McBride just keeps popping up in like movie, like you know, he's in this is like I think this is the end is kind of the Rosetta Stone of like all these comedy connections of like yeah who knows who and who's friends with who. And I was thinking about this at the end. I'm like, I don't think any of the Lonely only Lonely Island guys are in that movie. Yeah, I don't think so. Not that I can recall. Yeah. Interesting. But This is the End was also kind of the end uh, for those style. Of that It was kind of, I don't think they planned it that way, but it felt like a bit of a last hurrah for that kind of comedy. No, uh, I mean, yeah. Because the comedy is itself, and we, I think we've talked about this before, is in a very weird place right now i'm of the opinion that i think first of all I, the notion that com the comedy is dead i don't think that that i think it happens in cycles and i certainly think after a pandemic people will be very hungry for like good comedies like mm -hmm. not just like like needing a laugh but the notion of like the communal experience of going into the theater and laughing with everyone like that can't it's one thing to like release a comedy at home and like that's all well and good but it's not the same as like releasing a comedy into theaters and yeah. sort of seeing that reaction and like getting and what what the audience will give you there. Um, yeah, so and comedy. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just I think comedies are poised for a comeback, but I think you're right. Like this is the end was kind of the end of that era, and we don't really know what the current era looks like because there like there have been some exceptions. Like I think Blockers is terrific, but it's still it's been more sporadic than it was in the 2000s. Yeah, and it feels a little more calculated. Like, it's we've moved away from the improvis improvisational style. Um, I think Lonely Island are, are just always doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. And Akiva directed The Watch, which was not a, not even, I mean, it had Ben Stiller, Jonah Hill, and Vince Vaughn. Or no, Akiva, did Akiva direct The Watch? Or yeah, did he Sean directed Levy? The Watch. I, was, I remember being super disappointed by it. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. is like It's very forgettable, and it doesn't even feel super improvisational or anything. Like I don't necessarily know where that comedy fits in. But that comedy feels a little more like the comedies now, where it's kind of like a concept, or you like these two actors together, so we'll give you a comedy with them, like Stuber, 
like Kumail Nanjiani and Dave Bautista. And, yeah, but even something like Stuber, or, or to get even more recent, like The Lovebirds, like those scripts feel very kind of stayed. Like you watch The Lovebirds. I don't know if you saw The Lovebirds this week. I haven't yet. I mean, this isn't just me. Like a lot, like other reviewers were saying this as well. Like, oh, it's good because of Nanjiani and Issa Rae, but the film itself is kind of whatever. And I think that like, and I, and I agree with that. And I think that's sort of the issue. Like you're saying like, oh, it's good to see Bautista and Nanjiani like bouncing off each other in Stuber, but the film itself isn't really special. So unless you get something like The Big Sick, um, and like we've seen a film, like there's a great comedy this year called Palm Springs that we saw at Sundance. And I'm very excited for people to see it. But at the same time, like they're going to see it at home. Like it's yeah. going to come out to Hulu this summer, which is a shame because like I'm now even more grateful that you and I got to see that in a full theater because it would it brought the house down. Yeah. And also, this is a word of warning. Do not watch a trailer for Palm Springs. Do not read anything about it. Go in knowing nothing uh, as we did, because it's a lot it's a lot of fun that way, because um, yeah. it is something where the the central premise is kind of a secret. And then you once you understand what it is, you're like, oh, wow, this is really cool. But it's it's kind of fun not knowing. But that is a Lonely Island production, yes. um, as is. We also forgot to mention Brigsby Bear, which I yeah. like, which is uh, I mean, and that's kind of uh, so like the Lonely Island together have made Hot Rod and Popstar and that's it for like all and I guess Bash Brothers experience. But that's a little bit of a one off. And I think I don't think Yorma was super duper involved in that one because he was living in New York at the time. Um, to my recollection, not that they're not all like still friends, but um, that I think that was something that Andy and Kiva just cooked up really quickly. Um, but so like they they've made MacGruber and Popstar, which I think are or they've made Hot Rod and Popstar together, which I think are both incredible. And then they've done little side projects like MacGruber, I think is fantastic. I really love Brooklyn Nine Nine and Akiva and Yorma have both directed on that. Um, but with Brigsby Bear specifically, it was kind of fun seeing them lift up someone else's voice, in this case, Kyle Mooney from SNL. Um, and he has a little bit of a similar sensibility as them. There is an absurdist streak through it, but uh, kind of a heart and a sentiment, sentimentality that makes it last. Like, it's a really good film. And Mark Hamill gives a really good performance in it as well. Um, I would highly suggest writing that one down because it's also super funny. Um, and I think Andy has a supporting role in that one, right? maybe i don't recall yeah and then palm springs is andy's co-starring in in it with kristen miliotti and it very much is a two-hander between those two actors um but it's a it's not the lonely island writing and directing uh lonely island produced it um but they're kind of lifting up another creative voice and that one is unique um and like talking about like comedies feeling stayed palm springs feels anything but stayed it feels different it feels fresh Mm -hmm. it feels like something you haven't seen before um executed really well uh, and I think movies like The Lovebirds, movies like even like Set It Up, which I love, but I feel like Set It Up kicked off this whole like, oh, everyone wants formulaic rom-coms. Let's just make a ton of formulaic right. rom-coms. Yeah, without realizing like when Set It Up came along, we hadn't had a rom-com in a very in a while. So it felt fresh by virtue of there being a lull, like even more than a lull, but it felt fresh by virtue of just there hadn't been one in a while. Yeah. Like, and I now really it's just it. like there's a new one every weekend and they're super forgettable because they were all kind of slapped together at the last minute. Right. Now it feels like it's time to release. They came together again, which just takes the piss out of all rom-coms. True. Yeah. They came together as a delight. Um, But again, like they came together as its own school, the sort of the David Wayne craziness. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and they're coming from Wet Hot American Summer and that whole sort of, you know. Yeah, Wanderlust. Yeah, following that that chain of comedies down the line. But it's, Which it's, is Paul Rudd, who, like, I feel like I could make, like, a serial killer wall of, like, all of these bubbles. Because, like, Paul Rudd is in 40-Year-Old Virgin, but he's also with the David Wayne train. But then he and Jason Segel are together on I Love You, Man, uh, which, you know, is a bit of a... I think that was produced by Apatow. Um, but, yeah, there's yeah, all these different... Yeah different tracks that you can follow of people who kind of like cross pollinate each other's films. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it, and it's just, it's so weird to sort of see that cross pollination. And now it's sort of like, on the one hand, like you can look at people like Kumal Nanjiani and Issa Rae and like, feel like they're like the next generation of comedy stars, but like they're sort of being denied um, this, the, the, uh, the platform, you know, to sort of like make that leap. Like, you know, it used to be like, oh, Eddie Murphy was, you know, he was break out on SNL and now Eddie Murphy's going to be in uh, trading places and, and coming to America. Like there's a, there's sort of a, a, a way to get you to like movie stardom to like a bigger audience and to sort of like to make these sort of classic roles your own. And like when I was watching the lovebirds, I'm like, Nanjiani and Ray are both good in this, but like no one's going to remember that they're like in it. Like it doesn't reflect, like, it doesn't reflect the best of them. Like it doesn't yeah. reflect like in, like insecure is like Issa Rae's thing and, or something like the big sick is like Nanjiani thing. And I think like they know how to write to their own strengths but when they play in someone else's sandbox, like, you know, they're elevating it, but they're not like, yes, this is a movie that people will remember us for, <laughs> you know? And, and that's disappointing because I think obviously they have the talent for it. And I mean, we were talking, we were at TIFF last year and we were talking with a friend of ours made the good point like no one's leaving snl anymore because there's nowhere to go yeah like in a different era kate mckinnon would be a movie star by now but like and kate mckinnon stars in movie like she shows up in movies like yesterday yeah. you know but and it's not that she's bad but there there's no like vehicle really for kate mckinnon kate mckinnon shows up in the spy who dumped me and it's a bad it's kind of a bad movie and she's fine in it but like that film fades from memory and she's still on SNL and it's like what ha nothing happens. Yeah. Unless they're like generating their own material, like Tina Fey left SNL and created 30 rock and then created unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So like she's self-generating, right. uh, even Will Ferrell, he left SNL with Adam McKay and they went off and they made Talladega nights and stepbrothers and all these other films together. Um, and Bill Hader obviously left SNL to go make Barry. Um, if you're self-generating, it feels like you're doing okay. But yeah, it's no longer, it's no longer like the Mike Myers or even Dana Carvey who left to do the, what is it? The, the master of disguise. <laughs> I don't know if that was during or after his, his tenure. Um, that was definitely after. And I think master of disguise was after the Dana Carvey show, which there's yeah. a documentary on Hulu about called too funny to fail. Yeah. You know, I, I still need to watch, but it's like, he had this amazing team of writers and it didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, comedy's in a weird state right now. I, I think you're right. I mean, even something like Booksmart, which, you know, by most accounts was a success, still doesn't feel like it exploded to the degree that, like, Superbad or, um, you know, even Hot Rod exploded well, in terms of... Thing, a, like, there was room for that kind of explosion. Like, I think, and I'll, I'll draw the comparison since they're related, but, like, Jonah Hill and Beanie Feldstein are, are siblings. Yeah. And Jonah Hill can, like, have, like... Superbad can be like this breakout huge role that like makes him a star. Um, and then like Beanie Feldstein like is also amazing in Booksmart, 
And like, it's like, I think, and I mean, obviously like her career, like is in a younger place, but like, obviously it, it you know, Booksmart did not transform everything, even though she's going to be like in the new American crime story and like how to build a girl just came out. And I thought she was really good in that. But in terms of like, it's hard to be a comedy breakout star when there are no more comedies. Like, what do you yeah. do next? And like, where's the demand for it? Well, and to be fair, we don't know what kind of offers she's getting. I mean, I mean you know, she is the co-lead in Richard Linklater's next like 20 year project, True. which is a pretty huge deal. Um, and it's possible she wants to do like musical stuff and musical theater stuff. Right. But I, I agree. It's not like there are, you know, 18 different scripts ready and waiting that are really good that everyone is trying to get and like all of a sudden all right beanie feldstein is the the it comedy person let's craft this for her right so like yeah like comedy is like in a very weird place and it you know and i I also feel like the studios bear some responsibility for this because i feel like sometimes when they have a winner on their hand like comedy it's maybe this is an unfair comparison it feels like it's a lot easier to like make a hit out of like a bad horror film whereas like it's a lot harder to like but it's harder to sell a good comedy. Yes. To rephrase that, it's easier to sell a bad horror film than it is to sell a good comedy. That's what, and I mean, I think, you know, you see a lot of bad horror films and they're like a hundred million dollars. Also, these movies cost about the same. They cost about 25, 10 to 25. Like they're not there. You know, there's no, I mean, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, a comedy that costs a hundred million dollars. The Snyder cut count. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Just kidding. (laughs) Um, But the, you know, surely there is. I'm trying to think like there have been like pretty like big budget failures. Um, But I think you're right. And I think I think it's also what audiences want. Like, I think audiences are okay if they saw a shitty horror film because they still got a couple jump scares out of it. Um, I do feel like audiences get burned by bad comedies because it's like, and I think the degree of difficulty is harder. Like, it's a lot harder to make someone laugh. Comedy is, is, it's kind of funny that the Oscars are all about dramas and not about comedy at all. And comedy is a much harder. Yeah. It is it is so incredible. Have you if you've ever like gotten in front of a crowd that expects you to make them laugh? Yeah. It's very daunting. Because people like are like it's it's hard to hit that comedy looks like it could be easy and even in your day-to-day life you're like, "Oh, I make my friends laugh. Clearly I could do this for strangers." But it joke writing is very hard and like finding a unique angle is very hard and like coming up with those good jokes. So having so and again and and the kicker is is sometimes you can come up with a great comedy and the higher-ups won't realize it as such like the thing about mcgruber it was like it was basically dumped (laughs) like it came out in may but it was basically dumped by universal like they didn't understand what they had and so it's one thing to be like oh mcgruber's this great comedy and we all love it now it's like but not when it came out like it was a flop so this notion that like oh this Studios, I think, are better at telling when they have a successful drama or a bad drama than they are when they have a good comedy versus a bad comedy. Yes. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, also, uh, most expensive comedies, Evan Almighty. Yeah, they had to build an and... art. <laughs> I would also argue Wild Wild West. Sure. <laughs> um, I think there was something recent. Oh, wasn't like the budget of How Do You Know like $90 million? <laughs> 
<laughs> the James L. Brooks film. Probably just because of all the salaries. Like, yeah. Yeah. For yeah, like, what I think cost Jack Nicholson to show up for a day or a week yeah. or so. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's a bummer, and I do feel like like comedies like Hot Rod don't, or like careers like The Lonely Islands don't happen unless you give them a chance with a movie like Hot Rod. And same with like everyone that Apatow has kind of helped bring up. Um, and it's been fun to see like Ap- the kind of like Apatow school of comedy doesn't really have any burnouts. Like Seth Rogen went on to become a really successful writer, director, producer. He and Evan are, you know, they're making TV shows. Uh, you know, obviously they're making films. Jason Siegel just released like Dispatches from Elsewhere on AMC, which was just like a really earnest um, kind of weird dramedy series. But like, that's what he wanted to do. And AMC gave him the money to do it. Um, it's just been really interesting watching that. And I don't necessarily see like, I mean, I get like, you know, it's funny. I guess Pete Davidson is the kind of the most popular young comedian right now. And it's Judd Apatow who's giving him his movie, even though he's been trying to get it off the ground for forever. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's interesting. Maybe, and people can obviously disagree. Like, I heard Pete Davidson's Netflix special wasn't that good, though. Like, it was very gossipy, but it wasn't very funny. I haven't seen it. I think it's just more of, like, the raw, uh, like, kind of like his rawness is what people are drawn to. But yeah, I, I don't necessarily mean, like, technical. Like, he's not on the level of, like, John Mulaney or anything. John Mulaney is the most popular comedian today. Right. He's and that's the thing. Like, and that, I was thinking about, like, a different school. Like, John, that sort of John Mulaney, Nick Kroll kind yeah. of like they're sort of what they're off doing. Yeah. Which is just weird podcasts and like and just really esoteric uh stuff. Yeah. Which is fun. The sack lunch bunch. Yeah. A, I mean not everything that lands on Netflix is bad, but the sack lunch bunch and you know it's funny, you know, thinking about to, to bring it back to Netflix, I would like to see someone give um Oh gosh, the the I forget his name. The I think you should leave, Tim. Oh, Tim Robinson, yeah. Tim Robinson. So we should just give him a sack full of money to make a feature <laughs> film and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, it, well, and that's the thing is like he had a show called Detroiters and it was canceled, but I think he was also kind of ready for it to be over. I saw an interview with him talking about how like he was just stressed out of his mind trying mm-hmm. to make that show, and it was just really hard. Um, and especially now when like every streaming service, everyone is starved for content. So you're constantly barraged with like, this is funny and this is funny and this is funny. It's hard to like kind of get cut through the noise and to make something that people are, are really going to pay attention to, which is, I think why stuff like hot rod and pop star endure because they're different. They feel different. Even like Barry, like Barry is unlike anything else on TV. Like it's not a straight comedy. It's not a straight drama. It's hard to describe, but it's great. But, like, it's not like Bill Hader went out and just made something really generic. Yeah. So, and that's the thing. Like, you know, it's, you don't really know. I mean, again, I think this also speaks to sort of Hollywood's timidity is that comedy is sort of antithetical to what studios are looking for. Like, studios like to be like, oh, this is like this, so it will be a hit. Whereas a comedy has to not be like something else. A comedy has to be different in order to surprise people and win them over. So if you come out there and be like, I made like a comedy, like The Hangover, I mean, maybe a studio will green light it, but it, will, it won't be as good. And that's how you get films like Hall Pass. Yeah. Or even like Bad Moms, which was a hit. Uh, and I think Bad Moms is okay. Like, it's I didn't okay. hate it's that. Fun. I liked it. I liked it more than I thought. But it's like, again, it's very much like it has to be in the vein of this other thing. And so it's hard to like, 
because again, like Hot Rod, it's harder to it's harder to describe that film, you know? Like it's again, it's kind of like an 80s sort of riff. Um, but like then it just gets super duper weird. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the Lonely Island's brand. Like, MacGruber is kind of like an 80s Schwarzenegger movie, but then it gets super-duper weird. Popstar is like a music documentary, but it's just all super-duper weird. That's just kind of what they do. But then I I think Andy Samberg is really versatile because I think, you know, he can go into Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is fantastic. And it's just kind of, you know, feel-good television. It's not necessarily breaking boundaries or breaking the mold in any specific way, Um, but it's just really enjoyable and entertaining uh, and has really good characters. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think Hot Rod, definitely, I, I was glad that it held up for me. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, I had totally forgotten the, uh, the You're the Voice scene, but it was... When <laughs> they started walking, where you like... The You're the Voice scene, so... Yes. Yeah, and uh, I also watched... The forty-year-old virgin this weekend uh, for a thing I'm working on for Collider, and that movie holds up really well. But some of the jokes are very dated. But I think Hot Rod's silliness makes the jokes last. Like the yeah. jokes aren't necessarily rooted in pop culture or lingo or like now offensive in hindsight. Uh, they're just ridiculous. Yeah, it's hard to be sort of like you can't be mad at someone when they're just there's just a scene of just two. Two guys going, cool beans, cool, cool, cool beans. <laughs> yeah, like that's not going to age poorly in terms of being offensive or outdated. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, I guess that's all to say on Hot Rod if you want to move on to Recently Watched. Yeah. All right, what have you seen lately? Uh, so I watched Dial In For Murder, which is a Hitchcock film that I had never seen before. Um, from continue. Have you seen A Perfect Murder? Yes, I have seen A Perfect Murder because when I bought my first DVD player, the two DVDs it came with were, no, three. A Perfect Murder, Lost in Space, starring Matt LeBlanc, and uh, I think Stepmom was the third one. So I watched those movies a lot just because I like literally didn't own any other DVDs. So I was also way too young to probably watch A Perfect Murder, but oh well. I don't think I understood it. It was fine. Um, but but Dial In for Murder, uh, the better film, um, is it's just very Hitchcockian. It's a it's a crime mystery thriller. Uh, it's based on a sage play starring Ray Milland, uh, Grace Kelly, and Robert Cummings, and it's basically a husband who suspect, suspects that his wife is having an affair or knows that his wife is having an affair and plans her murder. That's the entire film. Um, and what is really engaging about the film is that there's a 25-minute scene towards the beginning. I think there's like there's two scenes, and then there's this 25-minute scene where the husband explains in great detail how he's going to murder his wife and why and under what circumstances and what's going to happen. It all takes place in one room, um, and it, you're just enwrapped the whole time. Um, and I think this is something that Hitchcock does very well, which is his blocking and uh, his shot composition, which in a per- in Dial In for Murder, I almost called it a perfect murder, uh, in Dial In for Murder, um, most of the scenes take place in a single apartment. They don't take place in, in disparate places. And so he has basically one location to light and to shoot, but he uses the objects in the room and the people in the room to reinforce where the characters are and what's happening. 
um, and how they're feeling and what they're doing. Uh, and so, like, on a technical level, the level, this film is incredible. On a script level, like, it's fairly straightforward um, for Hitchcock films. It, it's not it's not super duper probing in terms of theme. Um, but I think the the technical wizardry of it, I think, is makes it well worth watching. And even just the basic story is super engaging and super interesting to watch. Uh, you know, Ray Moland is, is really uh, compelling as the husband. And it's something that Hitchcock does really well is make you kind of like a root for the bad guys. <laughs> like he makes them very compelling. Um, not necessarily that you empathize with them, but the way he tells the stories, you kind of want them to go to like get it done. Like you kind of want them to do the thing because they're so like debonair about it and and they've you know clearly plotted this out. And I think that you know that kind of basic instinct was later mined for shows like Dexter and stuff like that and antiheroes. Um, but Hitchcock doesn't layer in a ton of complexity. It's just the way he's telling the stories you are sometimes the protagonist uh it feels like is the bad guy and therefore this is you know this is your protagonist plan i kind of feel like i want to see that plan go through even though it ends with the murder of his wife <laughs> um there are morals i mean obviously it, you're you don't end the film being like oh you know uh, um i think your your allegiances change but I think that's something that Hitchcock did very well is is his villains were always people that you kind of rooted for a little bit um, or maybe I'm just really insane and just made a bad admission. Here. No, they're captivating. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about like strangers on a train. Yeah. Yeah. He's like he's a psychopath, but like you kind of want him to do it. <laughs> like you, you kind of want to see it succeed. So, yeah, I don't know. Dial in for her. Good movie. All right. Uh, for me, I recently watched uh, the 1978 film Magic, which was written by William Goldman, who also wrote um, All the President's Men, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Princess Bride. Uh, this is him adapting his own book, and the film is directed by Richard Attenborough, who went on to direct the biopic uh, Gandhi. And Magic is Anthony Hopkins plays a guy who has an evil ventriloquist dummy. Um, so nice. he starts out with kind of like the stage magician, like doing, uh, like card tricks. And then he realizes no one's really watching. So he brings a ventriloquist dummy into his act named Fats and Anthony Hopkins like does the voice for Fats and he does himself. And then like, he's about to like become a big star and then, but his agent's like, ah, but you're gonna have to take a, take a, uh, a, a a, doc, a doctor's exam. He's like, I'm not doing a doctor's exam. And he runs away. He runs back to like his old town where he like gets together uh, with uh, that old flame of his, that a, a woman who had a, he had a crush on. Um, but as things progress, he can't really separate himself from the evil ventriloquist dummy who starts kind of prodding him to, to kill anyone that gets in the way of his happiness. And I, I sat down with him like, oh, this is going to be campy as hell. It's an evil ventriloquist dummy. That's fucking stupid. Um, and it works, man. Like, I don't, like, I, I, it was legitimately, like, a good psychological thriller. It's a movie about a guy. Like, there's sort of, like, the inkling, like, oh, is the dummy possessed? Is the dummy magic? Is, like, you know, like, what's happening there? And then as it becomes clear, like, oh, no, this guy is suffering from a personality disorder. Um, like you buy into it, like, and it helps that you have someone like Anthony Hopkins in the lead role. Um, 
but he really sells the intensity of it and really kind of the tragicness of it because the the tragedy of the story is that there's this guy and he's kind of dependent on speaking through this ventriloquist dummy who kind of speaks to his darker urges. And I'm watching it, I'm like, man, you know who would have a blast if they ever remade this would be like Tom Hardy. Like, oh, Tom Hardy <laughs> playing a crazy guy who does two voices, but the landscape being what it is, he has to do Venom instead. <laughs> Venom is basically a magic remake is what you're saying. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Like Venom is magic, but you know, for today's audiences. But I, I watched Magic. It was on, it's on Shutter right now, and I was I was genuinely impressed with it. I thought Hopkins was great. Um, I bought into the intensity of the stakes, and again, like that's a pretty heavy lift to be like, "There's an evil ventriloquist dummy, and his name is Fats." Um, but it works. I was like, it's not like the greatest film, and like I don't think like it's going to be like it's better than any of any other Goldman scripts. But it's it's solid, and I would highly recommend it. So yeah, Magic. Did not know that movie existed. Now you do. Now, I had first heard about it when I read, I think I read it in Which Lie Did I Tell, which is Goldman's second book. Um, but anyway, yes, that's, that's one to know. All right, so uh, we put out a poll earlier today. Now, usually what we do is we say, oh, there's these movies on Netflix. Watch, you know, vote on one of them, and that'll be what we discuss. Tomorrow, HBO Max launches. And so we decided... Because HBO Max has a really deep lineup of, like, good movies. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say that there is a fair number. Like, if you have an HBO Now subscription, it's just going to transfer to HBO Max. That's supposed to be what happens. And if you have HBO on cable, then you automatically get HBO Max. Yeah, and if you all get it. So, obviously, there's a large viewer base for HBO films. Uh, People are watching Game of Thrones and not anymore. But HBO is not unpopular is what I'm saying. And so we fit, figured it was fair to pick four films that will be on HBO. And the the candidates were um, Alien, Batman, Citizen Kane, and Jaws. And the people have spoken, and they have chosen Alien. Ooh, interesting. So it was close. So earlier today, it was like neck and neck between Alien and Citizen Kane. And then Citizen Kane dropped off, and Batman came on strong. And <laughs> Batman almost won, but it was, it went up went up over to Alien. Now, what if we talk about Alien Covenant instead? Yes, we'll only talk about Alien Covenant. <laughs> Maybe we'll ah, have a special ah. guest to come on and talk about Alien. Yeah. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so next week's episode will be on Alien, which will be on H. It should be on HBO Max at launch. So, which is May twenty seventh. Yeah, tomorrow launches tomorrow. So, if you're listening out- to this on June first, Matt. Ah, uh, uh. <laughs> well, yeah. So on May twenty seventh, HBO Max launches. So uh, watch Alien, and that'll be what our next uh, episode is about. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood, and you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. It's that little chico pit boom, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide, and you already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken, and you know, that's fire. Now, Babo, you know that you could get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now that's... 
That's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on negative to positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from negative to positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.